Where's your favorite place to take college game day? And I say every time, Eugene, Oregon. Welcome, Ducks fans. Where and whenever you are watching or listening, this is the Once a Duck podcast, where we bring you up to date with current and former University of Oregon athletes and give you never-before-heard stories about your favorite teams and moments in Duck history. We just came out of a Pullman game that I can't wait to talk about, but first let me introduce to you my co-host, Samuel Tidrick-Schmidt. You can find him at Twitter, uh, at Samuel101TS on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Nick R. Cody. And uh, as you can see, Sam got the Hall of Fame plaque up uh, from my time getting inducted in the Hall of Fame. And uh, we talked about that a little bit last week, but found a good place for it, I think. And uh, man, what what a game. First of all, we got to talk about some Pac-12 results. Uh, ready to do a lightning round? Nick, I am always ready to do a lightning round. It's been such a uh, fun week of football that we just watched. Another fun one coming up, but I, I'm excited to recap this Pac-12 weekend we just saw. All right, well, I'll let you kick it off. We're going to hit it here on the start button. Two minutes, lightning round, lightning yellow round. Uh, we usually just have a variation of topics. Sometimes it's the Ducks. Sometimes it's all around college football. But we went Pac-12-centric this week. Let's go. Well, first and foremost, I think I just have to give it up to the Pac-12 in general for having at least two absolutely phenomenal games, unless you want to also include that Cal-Arizona game as a third. A lot of really good football played this past weekend. I know one of those games you want to talk about a lot. I'll set that right up for you, that USC-Oregon State game. I mean, yeah, I didn't get to catch a whole lot this Saturday, uh, you know, other than the Wazoo game. But what I did get to catch, uh, man, the the end uh, for Oregon State there, tough Tough loss. Uh, I was really impressed with them to be able to make that stadium rock for the limited attendance, for it being half demolished there. It was impressive. Uh, and they made USC's juggernaut offense, everybody's been talking about, look a lot less impressive than I think a lot of people have been thinking. And it, it made them look very, very vulnerable. This week, they're going to go into Utah and tell us a lot about where everybody kind of stands in this conference, I think. Man, talking about where people stand, look at a freshman standing tall in Berkeley. Nick, This we, we've seen great freshman running backs before. We're Oregon fans. We've seen them. But my goodness, what Jaden Ott has been able to do for Cal is so impressive. Last week, first conference game of his career, 19 carries, 274 yards, three touchdowns, 14.4 yards per rush for the freshman in Berkeley. I don't know the last time there was a stud like that plan for Cal, especially at the running back position. We might have to go back to the 2000s, but really, really impressive stuff from him. Yeah, didn't get to catch too much of the Washington game. Do know I was on the light rail home from an open mic comedy show and was uh, hearing a lot of them celebrate, but also a lot of people not really respecting Stanford. We'll see a lot more about that this week. You know, another game that stuck out to me was the Utah-Arizona State game. I was curious to see how Arizona State would respond to their first game without Herm Edwards at the helm. 
and it looked like a team whose coach just got fired. They did not impress. Utah ran all over them, earning that rise in the rankings. 34-13, the Utes just demolished the Sun Devils. Well, that's our two minutes, but all we got to say is uh, UCLA ran over the doormat of the league this year, which appears to be Colorado. Uh, I'm going to knock on wood. It probably regret to say that at some point this season, but I really uh, hope I don't have to clip that at some point. It's, it's a, me too, brother, me too. But again, I think Colorado, I mean, when your athletic director and your administration is just issuing statements, trying to get the fans to be patient, it's a bad sign, bad look for the program. Uh, And, you know, UCLA just went and did what I think they were expected to do. Hey, man, Ralphie's still cool. Ralphie is one of the best things in in college football. Ralphie's still cool. If if I got to give Colorado something, I'm going to say, Ralphie's cool every time. If they gave us anything in that conference expansion, they did give us Ralphie and that 2016 season that's aside from that i well basketball challenges they've given us that thank you colorado (laughs) okay let's let's get to the positive and talking about challenges that's a great segue for exactly what this trip to pullman was for many reasons not just for the team also any fans watching at home having to deal with it or even as we know from our friend mike was letting us know how frustrating it was right there in the stadium with a lot of the calls uh, the broadcast team, I mean, I, I, it couldn't be, as I said on Twitter, a more Pullman day. Uh, and it, as weird as it can get in the Palouse, it, it did. And, uh, man, the team made it through a lot of difficult situations that I'm not sure, you know, this team, a less mature team, would be able to overcome. Well, you know, that's exactly what surprised me about that game from Oregon. And I'm going to start off with this because it's a point that's been made and it's a point that I think deserves to be made again. And it's just that Oregon has lost that game so many times. This Oregon program, at least for the last five, six years, it feels like when there are those issues early, it doesn't get better. It's very rare that you see Oregon struggle to be efficient the way they did in the first half of that game at Pullman, struggle making the mental errors they did, inability to do the simple things, to play Oregon football, and yet the Ducks still came away victorious. And I don't know the last time that happens. A lot of times when we can go back and look at games where things didn't go well early for the Ducks, it's snowballed, and it usually snowballed fast. This Oregon team, though, they were able to keep it a one-score game at the half. They were able to turn it on in the second half. And as we know, maybe one of the most phenomenal last four minutes of football we've seen in a long time, just in terms of the action, the excitement. It was a crazy game. It was a crazy learning experience. There's so much more to get into, but just a first reaction. It's so nice to see this team be able to win those kind of games that for years everyone would have written off by the second quarter. Absolutely. And, you know, just the, again, maturity is something I'm probably going to say a million times here, but the ability of this team to overcome mistakes that otherwise would have been crushing. I mean, calls in, you know, calls I agree with even sometimes that and, and bad calls, regardless of it, this team was focused on itself and it knew because how much it was able to drive the football and, uh, you know, a couple of corrections it was able to make at halftime. Like, they knew they were in this game. Uh, I, I felt very strongly, um, you know, there at the end of the first half, if you, you know, if you get the two point, uh, three points right there instead of uh, going ahead and trying to, 
you know, go ahead and get the extra little play in and having that negative play there. You honestly go right into halftime up 12 to 10. And, you know, I felt really, really good about the game in the first half, despite everything possible going wrong. The offense was moving the ball. It looked very creative and it set up what we saw later in the game is being able to attack over the middle when we needed it really, really bad. So I I, I was just really impressed with this team. Sam, who are individuals that stuck out to you? Well, Nick, you know, I love having my players of the game. I love going through afterwards, rewatching the film and being able to assess the guys that really stood out to me. Obviously, on offense, there's a couple of names that we all know I'm going to say. First and foremost, I've got to give it to Bo Nix. Bo Nix, in this game, he had this. This really was the Bo Nix experience. It truly was. It's what everybody said it was going to be. The final numbers on the day unreal but if you watched every moment of that game and you watched how it was working out it might not have felt like the career day it was but my goodness was it and finding those receivers in the second half made all the difference 33 for 44 428 yards passing three touchdowns an interception Knicks also had 30 yards on the ground and the all-important two-point conversion to make it a three-point game late in that ball game Really, really good work for him. He had the one mental error that we all saw. We all felt it. It was just the prototypical, oh no, kind of moment that we saw. We know Dillingham was probably reacting the way he did in that Georgia game up in the booth when it happened. But upon rewatch, I've got it written down in the notes right here. I've got something highlighted, and it's this play is on everybody involved. Every single person who was involved in that play from the call to making it was a part of that. Running the exact same play against the exact same look that had just worked on the fourth down. Now you're coming out the exact same look, doing the exact same thing. Oregon obviously struggled with play calling in that first half, especially in the red zone. Upon review, maybe it wasn't quite as bad as people thought, and there were just some great plays that Washington State made, which they absolutely did. But... On that particular interception, Knicks never looks anywhere but the running back. Straight the whole way watching him go. Linebacker reads it beautifully, too easy, down the field. And Knicks ends up getting a penalty on the play, too, for diving too low to try to be able to make that tackle. A play that I thought was definitely a little questionable. I'm not really sure how you call a, a, a little below-the-knees block on the team trying to make the tackle. Very interesting stuff there from the It was called team. a block in the back, too. Oh, of course, yes. Very, very interesting things from the Pac-12 crew there. But after that play, what impressed me most was that Knicks went to the sideline. He watched it. That visual we all saw. But then after that, he was right back to it. There was no hesitation. There was no fear. He was being smart with the ball. Several times made the type of plays that at Auburn, he probably would have tried to extend. He probably would have ended up throwing interception on. A lot of great throwaways. And then when he needed to, whether it was the pass to Irving on fourth down, the pass to Franklin for the lead, delivered absolute darts when he needed to. Bo Nix, this was the best game I think I've seen from him, period. As a duck, as an Auburn Tiger, in general, some of the best work I saw from him. And it wasn't because he put up the most touchdowns, had the most yards. It was because he showed the most resolve in a tough environment coming back from a mistake 
and really doing the things Oregon needed him to do to win. Also, it's worth noting, he had a catch on the day. Yeah, dude, I love that play too. Very, very fun. I love the the creativity of some of the offense. And I know just as much as you love stats, I know you love little trivia facts. So Bo did have a big day statistically. Do you remember when the last time Oregon had a quarterback that went over 400 yards was? I'm going to have to say it had to have been a Herbert game at some point. Maybe Arizona State 2016? It's freshman year. Yep. It's exactly what it was. And um, yeah, I think uh, what Mariota had one of those games too, I'm pretty sure. And it's, it's not something you come by very easily, but I'd sure love to see another one against Stanford uh, in a Pac-12 after dark game this week. But other than that, man, another guy that really stood out, we've talked about him before. You got to mention him again is Bucky Irving. I mean, just some fantastic runs in there and then a catch on fourth down that really just keeps us in the game, keeps us get have a given momentum on an offensive drive where we needed it, absolutely needed it. Well, and take a moment to just appreciate that play in that moment. It was 555 left in the game. You are down at that point. You are down two scores at that point. The score is 34 to 22. It's fourth down at midfield. If Oregon doesn't pick up this play, Washington State's probably able to take another two or three minutes off that clock, if not scoring. What happens, you see him come out of the backfield. They have him one-on-one with that linebacker. That's exactly what they wanted. They got him to make – he made the move downfield, got open, and then Bo Nix threw a pass that might not have been perfect, but it was exactly what it needed to be. It got there. It was slightly low, slightly behind – Bucky Irving, an impressive, not impressive, incredible catch there in nearly double coverage, able to make it happen. Just such such masterful work from the two of them. And it shows in these moments why Oregon's transfers are playing. People throughout the preseason, us included at times, wonder why the transfers were getting the run they did. We're seeing it in these moments. It's because of how they're able to show up They've been doing it in practice. They're doing it in games now. Bucky Irving, just really, really fantastic work out of the backfield. But the big play was receiving. There were a pair of receivers that I think had really, really impressive games as well. Obviously, Troy Franklin just doing his thing. Five catches, 137 yards, and a touchdown. That one that gave Oregon the lead. And then a guy who I mentioned last week who I thought could be big, Chase Coda led the team in receptions, seven of them, 84 yards, a lot of them in really big moments. And he was just able to be in the spaces where Washington State wasn't. It was so impressive to see him fill space, fill the middle, and then get yards after catch. Great work from the pair. Yep. And uh, another guy who got a touchdown who found some space, Cam McCormick slipping in there with the, you know, like all tight ends said it looked like. Uh, love to see that. Was hoping for them to attack that that middle of the end zone at some point in the game with uh, one of those guys. And and you know that's again a guy we want to see a lot more touchdown from and hopefully more knots in here pretty soon to celebrate. 
I loved that play so much, Nick, because it was such a tendency breaker based off everything else Oregon had been doing all game. It was on second down, on first down before that, they tried to sneak Knicks. Every single time Oregon had been at the goal line all game, it had been Jordan James up the middle. It had been eye formation with Herbert as the fullback right there. Knicks trying to push forward maybe, but then just the tight end slip. It was so gorgeous. He even sold the second block, which was the most impressive part. Got past, looked as if he was going to block that linebacker, made the linebacker jump to the side, and then there was nobody within five yards of him by the time he got the ball. Wide open, beautiful play design, beautiful misdirect, beautiful tendency breaker, just the perfect play call. If Oregon had been struggling with play calling in the red zone, that was the chef's kiss of the turnaround that was that game. Well, and a chef's kiss of turnarounds uh, is a great way to intro the next guy you have to talk about. Mace Funa, uh, you know, he had struggled at times this season and we'd, you know, seen it and, and talked about it. And he really came out, had himself a day and and sealed it, sealed the game right there with uh, one of the most devastating game saving or game ending pick sixes. Uh, some of the shots of the Wazoo fans there knowing that they cooked it and yeah, priceless. One of the most cooed it moments of all time and uh you could tell on their faces they they knew it that just ended ended the game took took a lot of momentum from him and congrats to wazoo because they played their asses off quite frankly cam ward came out and i said you didn't want to you didn't want to see him finally get going and uh he did and uh we saw why you don't want to have that happen but ducky's pulling out 44 41 there uh they still came down at the end and and were, were you know never quit but man you could tell from a lot of the fans faces they were like not again we cooked it again credit to ward he had one of the most impressive plays of the day and it was just that shovel pass flick while being brought down for a first down such an incredible play there but mace food the guy you mentioned Four tackles, half a tackle for loss, but my goodness, that interception when it mattered the absolute most, just the sticky hands to be able to get up and get it. And what I really loved hearing from Funa was after the game and the post-game press conference, he attributed that play to preparation. He said, this was a look we were expecting to see. This was a look we practiced against, and he was just happy to have been in the right position. And I love to hear that. I love to hear that as talented as Oregon is, as athletic as Oregon is, the type of guys they have, so impressive. But it's that preparation. It is that work throughout the week that pays off in those big moments. That absolutely warmed my heart to see Oregon's outside linebacking group, especially that that more edge rushing of the, of the groups, whether it's DJ Johnson, Mace Funa, uh, Braden Swinson, it's such a deep position for Oregon. And to see a guy like Funa be able to make a big play like that, especially considering DJ Johnson's going to be out first half of the Stanford game. We'll probably see a lot more of Funa and Swinson, a huge play, a huge confidence booster. Love seeing that out of him. Yeah. And uh, talk about confidence booster. This offensive line has to be boosting everyone's confidence playing with them right now, being the only team in college football to play four games and not give up a sack. That's incredible. Uh, you know, attribute that to a lot of people, not just, you know, that's offensive line, being able to work with your quarterback, working with your tight ends. And we've had some excellent times. You've seen some great uh, pass blocking from our running backs where they're able to step up in the hole and pick off one extra guy or be responsible for an entire guy on the line of scrimmage at times, which is, you know, incredible. That's a huge responsibility for, you know, guys that are asked so much in this offense to not just have carries, but to, to, to provide a lot of motion and get a lot of catches out there too. So, 
um, that's incredible. And you got to give it to those guys up front because they, they've been bringing it and, and it's been great to watch them gel. And, and, you know, that senior leadership right up there from Forsyth on down, um, you know, you can just, you can really count on these guys. And uh, in a situation like Wazoo, I think that you could see that over the years, they learned how to communicate in those situations, how to play off, you know, maybe it was a silent count. I'm, I'm not sure what their system was, but it, it certainly looked like they were in sync and, uh, you know, they could clean up a couple, you know, penalties and uh, some leaks. But other than that, I think that they worked really, really well together. Well, the two, the two offensive linemen that stuck out the most on the rewatch to me were Forsyth, who you mentioned, and Bass. Both of them looked so, so good in this game. Washington State has a great defensive front, and these guys were able to make things happen, whether it was these pulling motions that they were doing all day that worked so beautifully well, whether it was their pass pros. These guys looked absolutely fantastic. Nick, before we get into kind of our our summation and last thoughts on this big game, there's a couple more guys on this defense. I, I would be remiss not to mention the days they had. First and foremost, Noah Sewell finally had the game on paper that we've been waiting for him to have. We've all known how good this guy has been. Last week on the podcast, we mentioned, oh, it's not necessarily showing up all over the stat sheet, but he is a guy who's often there. Sewell, nine tackles, two solo, a sack, two and a half tackles for loss. And the thing that does impress me about seeing Oregon's tackling numbers is that they have 79 total tackles, 33 solo tackles. So often they're getting multiple hats to the ball multiple jerseys to the offensive player love seeing that out of this group a couple other guys that deserve attention where hudson had a huge play where he was able to bat down a ball that upon replay probably would have gone for a touchdown had he not been there also gotta say this name this is one that i've been excited to bring up a pair actually they had good moments and bad but when they needed to be good they were and that's going to be Williams towards the bridges. Both showed up in the huge moments when they need to. Absolutely had some moments that you would want back, but when they needed to perform, they did. Bridges, the never give up interception. He was able to keep his hands on that one. And then Williams made a couple of big tackles, including that huge pass breakup that, again, probably would have been a touchdown had he not been able to make that play. Lastly, Camden Lewis. Still knocking him down. Love having that. Can I tell you how much I enjoy having a kicker that I trust going into a Stanford week? That just makes me feel so much better than I think I've felt in years in terms of Oregon special teams. Well, Mr. Consistent and, uh, you know, the, the <clears throat> you feel really, really confident with him. I wish we would have kicked the one extra there when we went for it on fourth down. But I do love the aggressiveness for going in on fourth down. But if you're confident in your kicker, like a lot of us haven't been for a long, long time, Go with him, man. And that's why I can't wait to talk to our next guest. You want to introduce him this time, buddy? Oh man, that's a lot of that's a lot of responsibility, Nick. You're asking a lot of me right here to introduce our next guest, but absolutely. Our next guest, he is an Oregon legend. He has been in some of the biggest Oregon football moments, whether it's beating USC on a game winner, whether it's hitting 50 plus yarders down in the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, whether it's going to Stanford, knocking down three field goals and getting a win there. Folks, give it up for former Oregon kicker, Jared Siegel. With us now, former Oregon kicker, Jared Siegel. Jared, 
at once a duck we love to have the special teamers on and especially with the consistency of cam loose man a lot of people have been mentioning you since you know being the last oregon kicker that they can remember having this much faith in what's it like to see a guy having this consistent a season so far I'm just super, super happy for him. You know, uh, just a fan, a fan of the team now and a fan of uh, seeing just how how his hard work, commitment, sacrifices paid off. And uh, man, the stakes are high as a kicker. Uh, people have a tendency to love or hate you. And, and man, it, he's an easy guy to love this year. Jared, we really appreciate uh, having you in here. I really appreciate seeing that sport coat on you. It's a hell of a look. I'm absolutely yeah. a fan. During your time at Oregon, you were there for some what I think are really important years in the program. You got there in 2001 as a freshman, you were able to experience uh, the end of the uh, Joey Harrington era, but throughout your time, you saw some phenomenal players come through, whether it was the, the Kellen Clemens, whether it was some of the other fantastic athletes that had been out there from your time at Oregon. Is there, is there a time or people that you remember that really signify that era for you? Do you have uh, any special memories that really just kind of go with the the time frame in general, as opposed to specifics? Yeah, I uh, if you looked up and down that roster, uh, there weren't a lot of five star guys. We were a, uh, a a blue collar team that just really wanted to outwork uh, other people, and uh, at the end of the day, uh, played played incredibly well with one another. And there was a level of trust and commitment. Uh, that was really, I think, unique. And, uh, and so guys like Joey Harrington, Rashad Bowman, Keenan Howry, uh, guys that weren't necessarily uh, top of the, the you know, recruit list, all, the, so, all of a sudden showing up and really uh, outperforming some pretty elite athletes. And at the end of the day, uh, if you look back to that 2001 season, that was a pretty formative season. You know, we were able to uh, win the Pac-10 championship, went to the Fiesta Bowl, and beat Colorado, who was favored to, to win that game, uh, and finished up number two in the country. Uh, and so now that team has been inducted into the Hall of Fame. Uh, but if you look back game by game, there were a lot of comebacks. There were a lot of games that came down to less than three points. And so as the kicker, I felt unbelievably privileged to have a few opportunities to contribute. Uh, but that was a level of leadership that I really had never experienced before, uh, you know, in any sort of a sporting uh, venue. Now, one kick I definitely have to ask you about, uh, a record that still stands, is your 59-yarder against UCLA. Uh, I, I definitely have to ask about this because UCLA is special to me because that's my first start, and I got a kick blocked in that game. I think we attempted a 56-yarder in it, and Rob had been you know, railing him from about 60 yards in pregame warm-ups. So I was sitting back there thinking, oh, he's going to nail it, and I'm taking a good look back. And of course, I don't block my guy and uh, gets one arm through, gets it up high enough, low kick, gets it. But what was it like for you to not only make that kick, but to have the team have their faith in you to attempt that kick? Yeah, the, the, the backstory is I grew up in California, uh, you know, in the 90s. Uh, it was, you know, Oregon wasn't on TV as much uh, then as it is now. Uh, and so you'd wake up on Saturday mornings and you'd hear Keith Jackson and Dan Fouts announce games and and. Time and time again, it was UCLA, uh, the Rose Bowl, this iconic venue. And uh, you know, when I was going through the recruiting process, the coach of UCLA at the time, Bob Toledo, uh, you know, we had some conversations. I had the opportunity to go down to a small kicking camp at UCLA, and, and he told me I didn't have a Pac-10 leg. And so kind of an underdog guy, uh, I, I stocked that away and I remembered it. So fast forward two years, we're, uh, we're at the Rose Bowl in 2002. Uh, coming to the end of the half and uh, we, we don't complete the, the third down. So it's fourth down. 
Coach Bellotti turned to me and said, how far is this? And I said, it's 59 yards. And he goes, can you make it? And I, you know, I don't, I'm a confident guy, but that, you, know, you don't promise a 59 yarder. So you, uh, it's possible was my response. And so he thinks about it for a second. And he goes, let's get, give it a shot. And so I start to trot out onto the field and he, and he goes, Siegel, wait, 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 tell the offensive line to cover the kick. They can recover, they can return it. And, uh, and so I trotted out onto the field and, and Toledo and, and all the other coaches are screaming, watch the fake, watch the fake. And they, they drop a couple of returners back in the end zone. And so I, I wasn't, wasn't positive I was going to make it, but I was positive I wasn't going to drop it short in the end zone. And uh, it was a phenomenal snap, phenomenal hold that, you know, it, it, takes, it takes the team, right? No one got through. I was able to, uh, to put a foot on it and uh, punch it through. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think we, we won that game by a point. Uh, and so stadium record uh, at the time, a conference record, school record. And uh, just it, it's a super special time, you know, when you have an opportunity to contribute to a team win. Uh, there were a lot of other spectacular plays made in that game. That's just one that people remember. Uh, being able to run off the field, uh, you know, to a silent Rose Bowl, knowing that you just kind of quieted everyone was a pretty, pretty spectacular feeling and a fun, fun way to celebrate halftime. That's such an impressive play, Jared. It, just the length alone, everything that goes into it. But one thing that I find so impressive about every single kick, whether it's a field goal, an extra point, are just how many pieces have to go right for it all to be effective. From the long snapper to having a holder who can get it down, get it around for you, having an ideal kick. The, it's a two-part question, but first... Who were some of the, the best special teams guys you got to work with? And what goes into a really well-executed kick? Uh, you, you know, generally speaking, you know, guys peeling off the side, you, you have less than 1.3 seconds to snap the ball, put it on the ground, get the laces where it needs to be, and get the kick up. And I, I think a lot of people uh, don't realize that the trajectory of the kick needs to be there as well. You know, a lot of the guys would show up wanting to walk on as a kicker, and, and back in the day, Jim Radcliffe would set him five yards in front of the upright and say, can you make a five yarder? He didn't care if you could hit a 55 yarder, if you couldn't get, you know, the ball up 10 feet, five yards in front of you. Uh, and so, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of moving parts, you know, a small variance has a huge impact, right? Many people have played golf. It's very difficult to get a golf ball to go straight, but it would be like walking up to your tee shot and having somebody else put the ball down in the middle of your backswing. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of moving parts, small variances can have big impacts. There were a lot of special teams players that were awesome uh, during, my, during my time there. You know, there were countless guys that, that found a way to get onto the field on kickoffs and punts, uh, guys that would just grind uh, to get their opportunity to shine. Um, probably the guy that uh, people might remember the most that uh, during my time there was Keenan Howry, uh, probably about five foot nine, maybe about 175. Uh, one of the most courageous punt returners ever. That guy never fair caught a pass or a punt and uh, some iconic returns in the midst of games that we needed the most right back up the gut. Uh, you know, I, I have a memory of a civil war in 2001 where <clears throat> if we win, we go to the Fiesta Bowl. If we lose, we don't. And uh, Keenan Howery against, you know, Oregon State in the middle of a, a rain and hail game caught one and took it right back up the gut to the house and, uh, yeah, you Autzen know, Stadium might not have ever been louder than at that moment. Yep, former once a duck guest Keenan Howery. I hope people go back and check out that episode because, man, yeah, one of the best of all time for sure. And um, you know, being one of the best of all time at your position, I've always wondered with kickers, 
uh, especially being uh, playing during the, the Chip Kelly era where you didn't get a lot of opportunities outside of extra points. How do you keep yourself involved with the game? Uh, you know, how do you make sure that you're mentally focused, even though, you know, maybe you're not going to get a chance or, or maybe, the, you know, the offense is, is on one side of the field. How do you, how do you make sure you don't get caught off guard during a football game or distracted as, you know, as one of the mental focused things that special teamers usually have to, uh, you know, are, are challenged by. Yeah. You, you never really know, right? Like a backup never knows when they're going to go in and place kicking is certainly one of those things where it's hard to know when, when to be ready. So you're kind of perpetually ready. And, and it's kind of like being a relief pitcher, you know, you need to be ready, but it, it's difficult to be ready for three or four hours consecutively. Uh, and so uh, while that that's physically challenging, I, I personally found the mental aspect uh, probably the most uh most challenging, right? You can kind of stay warm and loose, but it's uh, being uh, intellectually kind of mentally prepared for that moment because, you know, every time that you stepped onto the field, it was points, right? And, and the margin of victory uh, in college football is low. And so you, can, you don't want to leave points out there. And so when the defense has, has gotten the ball back and the offense has put you into, into scoring, scoring range, you want to be able to convert. And so uh, it was probably about being prepared so that in that moment, you could kind of turn off the noise, that quiet voice in your head, and just kind of let muscle memory take over. Jared, Oregon's got a big game this coming week against Stanford. I know Nick's got a question coming up for you or a couple about that particular matchup. But one more moment I want to touch on before getting into this week. When USC came to town, you hit the field late in that ball game, not going to kick. It ends up being for the win. Walk us through that moment and maybe more importantly, walk us through how the rest of that night went. <laughs> well, uh, you know, so as a kicker, you, it's a, it's a lonely position, right? You spend a lot of time out there, uh, you and the uprights and no one else. Uh, and so it's you and your thoughts a lot of the time. And so you're trying to figure out how to be motivated to keep grinding and you dream about that moment. And so, uh, in the, in your quiet times, you're dreaming about that moment. You know, what would it be like to, to have that opportunity in 2001 USC came to town. It's on ABC, uh, Carson Palmer, Troy Polamalu, guys that, uh, that had, you know, pretty respectable NFL careers. They were, they were, you're watching them on Sunday for a long time and in a back and forth game, uh, we, uh, we got the ball, Joey Harrington drives the length of the field, uh, you know, just dropping dimes, guys getting out of bounds, uh, managed the clock flawlessly. Uh, and Coach Bilotti sent me in, you know, as a 19-year-old freshman uh, in Autzen Stadium, and it's a packed house. My heart's beating through my chest. Uh, you know, one of, the, one of the guys on the team screams at me to not, don't screw this up. Uh, more choice language, but don't screw this up. You know, I was a, a, an anonymous freshman, right? Like most people aren't paying attention to the, to the true freshman kicker. Uh, and so it was a moment where it was kind of a make or break for me. Am I going to earn my, my teammates trust? And, you know, anyone that's been on the team, that's probably the currency that they value the most is the respect and trust of their teammates. And so I, uh, you know, in, in that moment, uh, uh, teammates screams, don't screw this up. You know, Joey Harrington is my holder at that moment. He's a Heisman hopeful. Uh, he's got a 10 story billboard in times square. He grabs him by the face mask and he goes, dude, you got this money. You got this all day. And, uh, and it kind of snapped me back into, into that moment, uh, spectacular hold spectacular team. You know, we kept, we held the line, right. Got, got the guys, uh, where they needed to be 
or not be. Joey gave me a perfect hold uh, and I, you know, decade worth of adrenaline, just put it into the ball and, and just smoked it. And uh, hearing Autzen Stadium as a, as a true freshman erupt to a, a game winning kick against SC, uh, it's not noise. You just feel it. It's a, it's a reverberation in your chest. Uh, and I mean, it was, uh, probably an emotional apex for me. Uh, not, not as hard of a kick as the UCLA kick, but it meant more to the team in that moment. And it meant more to me because I was trying to earn their trust and respect. Uh, you know, normally the kicker doesn't get very many interviews. Uh, the student section rushed the field and all of a sudden I'm up on, you know, inebriated freshman shoulders trying to give a, an interview and proceed to give one of the worst interviews in sports history. Uh, but it was a special moment. And, uh, you know, at the end of the, at the end of the night, uh, that evening was a, a fun night celebrating with teammates, but, uh, at the end of the day, you're still just a, a five foot 10 ginger kicker. So I was no more popular than I was the day before. Oh, that's incredible. Oh, oh. There are so many highs and lows in football, and it's really, really hard to bounce back week to week. This week, Oregon has to bounce back from an incredible comeback at Wazoo and play, uh, you know, what, you know, this season has been a disappointing Stanford team coming into Autzen Stadium. We had a lot of tough battles with Stanford that always seems to be that team that you run into when you least expect it, that it just it has the craziest games with Oregon. Uh, what in your time uh, at Oregon do you remember get about your matchups with Stanford in in particular? They, you know, they were uh, they were the sleeper team my freshman year. Uh, if you looked at that season, the only game that we lost that entire season, the spoiler for an opportunity to win the national championship, was a game against Stanford where we went into the fourth quarter and we were up forty two to twenty eight going into the fourth quarter. I mean, that, that game was all but one and uh, some wild, uh, wild things. We talked about special teams needing to be special. Two blocked punts in the fourth quarter, uh, just heart-wrenching, uh, you know, and, and then Stanford offensively, you know, turned, the, turned it on. They punched in three touchdowns. We fought, almost, almost came back. Uh, we had so many comebacks that that's that year. And I was actually fully expecting, okay, here's another one. We're going to come back. We'll pull this out. Uh, and we didn't. And uh, man, that was a, a heart wrenching experience, but uh, just a, a life lesson on leadership. I mean, just seeing how the old guys came around us, uh, you know, Joey Harrington on offense, Rashad Bowman, uh, Dave Moretti, uh, there was just a tremendous amount of, of stoicism and resilience in that team. And, uh, and we never lost a game the rest of that season. So, you know, it was only my freshman year and I, I, I it's hard to fully appreciate an experience in real time. You know, it was the only college football experience I'd ever had, but uh, the leadership and resilience of that team is something that, uh, that I really cherish. Another big performance that comes to my mind when uh, talking about Oregon and Stanford, particularly your contribute contribution would be the, the game. I believe your senior year, 2004 down on the farm. It's another one of those weird Oregon Stanford games. This one happens to be particularly low scoring, but you hit a field goal in the first, second, third quarter. And then the fourth quarter, when Oregon scores a touchdown, you hit with at the time as a go ahead, uh, extra point, I believe, or to give Oregon a, a three point lead big moment right there. What do you remember from that matchup your senior year and in a game where you are called upon so often, 
does it feel like something where you're getting more into a rhythm or does it feel like another opportunity to make a mistake? No, you're definitely in a rhythm. Uh, there, there are certain, certain seasons where you're getting more opportunities, you know, uh, and, and when you're, when you're able to kick field goals week after week, uh, the nerves aren't there. It feel, it's easier. Uh, and so in a game where you're going out and you're getting, you're getting more opportunities, uh, it just feels a lot more comfortable. So uh, you do get into a rhythm. Um, you know, that was an interesting game. You know, it was in their old stadium. Uh, so it was a really crummy day. It was wet, cold. The field was soaked. The ball's wet. Uh, and there were very few people in the stadium. So it wasn't quite like a, a COVID empty stadium, but uh, it was one of those rare experiences coming from Autzen Stadium where it's just a roar, you know, everywhere. If you're getting trash talked uh, at, at Stanford at that point in time, you could look up into the stands and identify the person that's saying this stuff. So that was uh, that was a weird experience, but you could hear the pads popping. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was fun to be able to contribute. I think that was the game that uh, I was able to punch into, uh, you know, most career field goals uh, in school history. But it, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, what's cool about football is it really does take uh, contributions from the, from the defense at all points, you know, it takes the offensive line doing their job, you know, QB running back. It, it's cool when, when everyone everywhere is contributing uh, in that capacity. So um you know, Stanford's, uh, Stanford's a team that uh, you definitely can't sleep on. There's enough skill year in and year out that if you look past it, uh, you'll, you'll certainly regret it. Now, Oregon fans everywhere know plenty about missed kicks, but I don't think a majority know what it's like to have the mental capacity to bounce back from it and to be able to make the, or at least be confident that you're going to make the next one. Uh, what's that process like, at least for you? And what advice do you have for young kickers out there that are trying to learn how to overcome those kind of missed kicks that sometimes, you know, either cost games or, or in critical situations where the team's depending on you? Yeah, it's a, it's a really yucky feeling. Like if I think back to the very first field goal uh, I missed, I think it was against USC. It was like a 38 yard field goal. And uh, it was actually a pretty good kick. All things considered, I put a good foot on it. The ball went straight. It's about 18 inches outside the upright, but uh, close doesn't count. Uh, and so uh, I immediately knew that it was a missed kick, but the uh, Autzen stadium did not. And so you hear kind of the anticipation and excitement as they, they think the ball's going through the uprights. So there's a, oh, oh, and it feels like you just let the, you know, county of Lane down, you know, uh, the entire city is, is, you feel like you let everyone down. So that's a, that's a yucky feeling. Uh, and in high school, it's fun because you could just throw the helmet on, play defense and take out the aggression and just kind of turn the page. But, uh, you know, college, you, you go back to the sideline, look a hundred plus guys in the eye and say, you're sorry, you know, and, and. You just want to make sure that you didn't leave anything uh, on the field, right? Because it wasn't that moment. Uh, it was the preparation that led up to that moment. And so the entire offseason, I just encourage the young kickers to, to grind it out and outwork everyone so that you know you're as humanly prepared as possible. You know, life is about kind of most things live on the continuum of success and luck. There's going to be some things about kicking that are always outside of your control, but your preparation isn't one of those. And so if you've been able to do it, uh, in, in preparation, it's about just kind of turning down the voice in your head, turning the page, you know, past kicks, you can't change that. So, you know, almost flush it, just try to forget, move forward and, and just know that you're as prepared as possible for the next step back. Jerry, we really appreciate you taking the time and coming on the last one I've got for you before we, uh, we try to get you out of here and a fair enough amount of time is 
It's a question I like to ask people. Nick knows where I'm going with this, but I've got a little bit of a spin on it this week. You are actually the first player from that played in the Oregon era where you got yellow jerseys. I see you've got the sport coat on right now. It's bright green and yellow, but that 2000, I believe three team was the first one to have a yellow Jersey, yellow pants. The first time you show up in the locker room and you see that bright yellow looking at you, what's your thought? I mean, it almost hurt your eyes. We were, uh, we were in, in, in Mississippi and, uh, and earlier the, about a year earlier, George Reister, uh, was in a meeting, I believe with Tinker Hatfield and a bunch of different, uh, Nike designers. And they were talking about ideas. And back in that, that era, Miami had an alternate Jersey. So they had a, a third Jersey. And so they talked about, Hey, what if we, what if we took that neon yellow that was at one point, just the, the O on the helmet and we made a whole uniform out of it. And so, man, it was super bright. It was wild to see head to toe neon yellow. Uh, we came out of the tunnel. I mean, just radiating, you know, TV definition back then was not what it was today. It was like almost overpowered traditional television. Uh, it, now this is kind of an urban legend. I don't know if it's entirely true, but I, I believe it is. The story that I heard, we never wore those uniforms again. There was a green stripe down the side of the leg. And I heard that one of our student uh, equipment managers washed them hot and that that green bled into the Jersey and they turned to Jean. So uh, it was a one and done Jersey. We never got to wear them again. And back in that day, we, it, we didn't wear our jerseys once it was a uh, rinse and repeat, but uh, unless uh, I guess the, the Jean yellow was, uh, was a no go. Wow. What a great story. That, that is awesome. Uh, you, you did get to uh, see the, the, the peak of the uniforms, but I got to ask you for, on behalf of Sam, a question we usually ask, what's your favorite uniform in all of duck history? Man, there's something about that mirrored helmet when they ran out at the Rose Bowl. It just, like, I had never seen that mirrored helmet before, and it just looked so uh, futuristic and, and nonconformist. And then, obviously, the, the way that that game played out was also favorable. So, fond memories. So, assign those fond memories to a pretty wicked helmet. And once they figured out that you shouldn't make the inside of the face mask reflective, too, they were really cool. That, that first half was rough. <laughs> Oh, Jared, thank you so much for coming on here, man. We know you got a uh, a podcast. We want to give you the uh, the chance to shout that out and uh, tell people where they can uh, see your stuff and where they can follow you at. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I run a podcast for for work, Success That Lasts, you know, available anywhere that uh, you find your podcast. So appreciate the opportunity to shout that out. And I also just appreciate the opportunity to kind of talk shop about the Ducks and uh, and celebrate some fun memories, uh, you know, and and just sharing the community with the, with the Ducks here always thank you for coming on and uh, as always jared once a duck always a duck thank you thank you damn that was one of our best interviews i'd say so far and as always special teams tend to be special and that was a special interview a lot of information you'll only get here at once a duck but uh and a uh, a fit that will you you will only see here on once a duck i'm glad we encouraged that out of our guests sam you know, Nick, it's it's really great when somebody brings the same spirit you do to something. And my goodness, that was exactly the once a duck spirit right there. Every single part of that, whether it's the outfit, whether it's urban legend is fact, whether it's some great uniform knowledge, like that's that, that's kind of everything I'm looking for in a once a duck interview.
match that energy and what we're gonna have to do is match the energy we had against wazoo in the second half for this stanford game wrapping up our thoughts on the wazoo game man first uh, you know i i hope we can take everything we learned all that momentum in all the positives and then like we've seen scheme up a little something special for stanford this week to i really love to see us take advantage of them deep because as you saw towards the end of the wazoo game when you start feeding our receivers man it's too much for the defense to cover well, a combination of, I think, Oregon's playmaking ability downfield with guys like Franklin, Thornton, Coda, who we saw be effective, the tight ends that have been effective all season long, combined with the fact that, frankly, this Stanford secondary hasn't really covered anybody too well all season it is something that at least breeds breeds more confidence in me than a lot of Stanford games previous half. I'm not willing to say that I'm 100% confident because it's Stanford late at night. And especially if Oregon, for some reason, doesn't fix some of the issues that we saw in the last game against Washington State, there there could be problems here. David Shaw is a very, very educated coach. He knows what he's doing. He's played all these teams a whole lot of times. He knows what he's doing. But I think we saw Oregon correcting a lot of the mistakes that they made in that first half of the Washington State game in the second half of that Washington State game. For example, we talk about the play calling, right? And again, upon review, there were a couple of things that stuck out about that, especially in the red zone. Number one, Washington State's defense is built for that. They are a bend but don't break defense that is extremely quick to the edges and will stretch you out and put you in the position to have to beat somebody one-on-one, which is very difficult to do against a team as talented as they are. A lot of the times, especially in that first quarter, in the second quarter as well, inside of the red zone, Oregon was doing the kind of plays that they had been pulling off successfully against Eastern Washington BYU, but the linebackers in the secondary for Washington State was just too quick for a lot of the tight ends to get their paws on and really effectively block. So often there were guys getting away from those blocks that were making plays, and it wasn't until the second half when Oregon realized they would have to just be stronger a lot of the time and work with the spacing that they were able to take advantage of the advantage they had physically and athletically yeah and you know at least we've already seen what it's like to see pac 12 after dark at midday because that's what it felt like honestly but because uh you never know it always feels like and like uh we were just reminded in the interview stanford has regularly just been that one game just shows up on the schedule you completely expect those teams to to not be able to match up and somehow stanford finds a way they out scheme you they outplay you at certain positions they always have some plethora of tight ends that's difficult to cover towards the end of the game and they inevitably be, you know get some calls their way uh in zach Ertz's case or uh in a couple other situations i can remember but hey i'm never comfortable going into stanford game i i'm still trying to figure out exactly what my prediction is going to be but thankfully before that we have a bunch of responses on twitter that asked you guys first this week what what are you going to do to stay up for the late night kickoff and more importantly what is your favorite pac-12 after dark moment whether it's oregon related or not so i thought we had a bunch of them one of that we've seen consistently uh josh freeman pointed out the oregon asu three overtime thriller in 2015 man that was uh, vernon adams out there in that game absolutely slinging at the end putting it places that had to be uh and and just i mean a lot of people probably lost a couple years off their life that day to be honest with you sam 
I know I did, Nick. This was one of the responses that I had to respond to myself just because it is such a such a core memory, if you will, this this game. I remember 2015 season. This was well into my, let's call it a residency, watching Oregon football games up at the pizza parlor near my place. Shout out Pizza Roma in Portland there on Woodstock in the Southeast. And this game was so much fun. The whole game was back and forth, whether it was the, the ESPN not cutting back from commercial in time to catch half of Charles Nelson's kickoff return, whether it was the incredibly impressive game that Darren Carrington played throughout that ball game for Oregon, Royce Freeman, who just, again, so consistently put up insane numbers in an Oregon uniform. But of course, we're going to have to talk about Vernon Adams, end of that ball game, just the most magical of plays to end the re- to end regulation. Braylon Addison with a foot that with a foot. Let's look at if Zach Ertz was in bounds, that foot from Braylon Addison was absolutely in bounds there. The second overtime and Arion Springs picking off that ball. I still remember how relieved I was at that interception, just because I'd be able to get home with hopefully out without being in too much trouble for being as late as we were, but just that's, that really is one of the all time classic. Oregon football games, Pac-12 after dark games, such a classic there. Well, one that I definitely had to agree with here because I was at it. Uh, at Courtney Mary G said, Fright Night was my favorite late night. You know, if you know, you know. And everybody that there knows it was Halloween night against USC. Uh, and we, we just took it to them. All night we knew that uh, coming in, we had the number. We had a great game plan. Ran the hell out of power that entire game. I remember Carson York and uh, Mark Asper just pulling all over the place that game, and got to get in there a couple times myself. And uh, you know, it was a fun day to look I look I look back so fondly upon. It and everybody has their own memories from it. But uh, just overall, the entire day I remember going in with just a confidence that we were going to go out there and kick their ass, and then we did. Nick, here's where I get in trouble for being a stickler, and it's where I'm going to get pointed at and booed at, and they're going to throw rotten tomatoes from the crowd, and I get this, but does it count as Pac-12 after dark if it's a primetime game? A 5 p.m. ABC kickoff is a primetime game. If we're drawing that Pac-12 after dark line, is that that 6 p.m.? Is it the 7.30 slot? I, I, I think the debate's open. I'm just very curious. What constitutes Pac-12 after dark versus a Pac-12 primetime showdown? That's a fair call, Sam, but in my night or in my in my wisdom, I think you're going to call anything Fright Night. I can't blame anybody for lumping it in with Pac-12 after dark. I just think it was just as crazy. The reputation of the game and some of the big plays, I I just think it it, will we'll put it in there, at least honorable mention. Well, and I'll tell you, my favorite non-Oregon answer was the absolutely unbelievable game between Washington State and UCLA from, uh, I believe, 2019. And that. My goodness. I remember Oregon had played at Stanford that day. So that wasn't a trip that was made. I'd been watching college football all day and I was excited for this game. Kind of stopped watching it a little bit. I was like, at, at halftime, I was like, Washington State's up by so much. They just kept scoring. I almost flipped the channel. But every time I was about to, UCLA would make a play. And in that third and fourth quarter, DTR, Dorian Thompson Robinson just went off for UCLA and if there were to be a cooged moment that was comparable to what we just saw this past weekend, it was that game being up 49 to 17. I believe it was. Oh my goodness. Cooged it. 
C-O-U-G apostrophe deed it. Through Absolutely. Dude, I, I, there, there's a lot of that in Pac-12 after dark, and that, that feels like the obvious answer. Um, just lost the answer I was going to give, but I remember exactly the game. It was uh, – no, wait, here I've got it. It was the 2009 overtime with Arizona. Uh, contributor was uh, Fleetwood, Crack at, uh, Fleetwood Quack at Bryce Goducks 1. And uh, he uh, he suggested that uh, the double overtime game, 2009, not 2008, when Arizona was rushing the field and had to go back and watch the Ducks win in double OT. And yeah, that was a crazy game. Not only were the fans already rushing the field from the student section side and they couldn't get them to go back in the stands, but yeah, cheerleader got hit with the bottle that game. And uh, it was it was one of the most hostile environments I ever remember playing in and being able to overcome it really reminds me of a lot of last week for them. Well, you know, Nick, I'll put, I'll even put a game from last season on this list in terms of really, really crazy Pac-12 after dark games. I believe it was one of those 7:30 kickoffs. And it was that game against California last season, the one where, the one where Anthony Brown came out after being booed, rushed for multiple touchdowns, had a crazy game, and then the defense showed up on the last drive for California. Time was expiring. They brought the blitz all out. Everybody came incomplete pass. Oregon got that win late night last year. I think that was at least in recent memory, very recent memory, the most exciting Pac-12 after dark game I was at least at. And uh, a shout out to everybody out there, your responses, especially all the people that were reminding us how late it's going to be for them watching this week's game in their particular areas, especially our fans overseas, which I love to see. Uh, you know, it's pretty awesome when you go, go back and see some of the podcast numbers and you're like, oh, we have an international presence. That, that's pretty awesome. And if you guys want to contribute to the show, go ahead and make sure you leave us a comment. First and foremost, down in YouTube, that'll be the easiest way. If not, respond to us on Twitter. We're out there at Once a Duck and on Instagram. Go ahead and give us a follow. And, you know, always we're looking for guest ideas. We're looking for topics you want us to talk about, things you might want to hear in our lightning yellow round, all this and more. Bring it on. Me and Sam are ready for it at all times. And, uh, man, we're getting a lot of great feedback here. I wish we could incorporate more of it into the show sometimes. But, hey, I feel like, you know, three or four people getting their opinions on there. That's a great way to go. And uh, hopefully get more people to engage in, in other mediums because hey, we get a lot of responses on Twitter, but we're still looking for some of that feedback. Those comments help a ton on YouTube and other platforms to get our podcast out there to more people. And man, the, the interaction on Twitter has been great. Our, our Instagram following is, is doing a great job as well. They are really climbing on board here. And also go follow Once a Duck Clips. Brand new YouTube account, Connected Hours. We're just going to be posting some of the best interview clips, some of the best reels, some of the best shorts, all, 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 all the best little moments that you need. If you just need a quick Joey Harrington hit, a little bit of Michael James, a little bit of Jeff Schwartz, we've got we it might on there. Need to, check we, it out. Might, we might need to combine that last interview with a little bit of the Howery there with talking about his play. That would be incredible. Oh, we're Keenan Howery's going to be up on there soon. Jared Siegel will absolutely be up on there soon. I think we're going to have uh, – Later tonight, in fact, I think we're going to be able to get uh, a Rose Bowl MVP up on there as well as far as clips are concerned. So go check that out. It's going to be a lot of fun. Love it, man. And, uh, you know, before we break down our predictions and sign out, just a big thank you to everybody that's been out there supporting the whole Hall of Fame thing, man. It's been crazy. 
been getting a ton of messages, lots of support ever since that. I don't deserve it. Give it to that 2010 team. There's a lot more important people there than me. But again, appreciate the response. It's really been overwhelming. I wish I could get out, uh, reach out to every single one of you uh, individually and say thanks. And, and, you know, the ones I haven't, I'm sorry. I'm trying to get to it, but, but thank you, everyone. Well, Nick, I think that 2010 team is the great, a great, great jumping off point for our conversation. Anytime we're talking about Oregon versus Stanford, that game more than any other really sticks out in my mind. I remember watching it over at my grandparents' place and feeling so concerned after that Darren Thomas interception. But the way, the way that entire team just fought back, tied up that ball game, took the lead, and then as we know, statement, 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 it really set the tone for what that entire season was going to be. And I would love to see this Oregon team come out and have a statement, statement, statement win against the Stanford Cardinal. Yeah, I would love to have one of our backs just have one of those simple inside zone plays that just goes right up the hash mark for, you know, 60 plus yards or whatever it was. I remember that little Michael run to this day because that was straight teach tape for just how you want to get an inside zone going, get everybody to the right spot. And right now we have an offensive line that can do that, that can communicate that well. I'm excited for this game. And I'm even more excited to see the passing advantages that we could take against Stanford. For once, I feel like we actually have a tight end advantage. <laughs> when do you say that playing Stanford? When do you say that? As an Oregon fan, it's very, very rare in my opinion. I, I honestly don't think ever. If you go down the list of great Stanford tight ends, you'll, you'll still be talking by the time we start recording our next episode next week. It's an impressive list. But Oregon right now has such a fantastic core of tight ends. The four that we've been seeing play the most this season. Obviously, Terrence Ferguson, who we have given every flower he deserves on this podcast and will continue to do such. Cam McCormick, now with two touchdowns on the season, both of which came at great moments. That Washington State one, just incredibly huge. Love seeing the team trust him in that moment. Love seeing him, his work pay off in that moment. And then guys like Matavayo, who does a lot more blocking than receiving, but does it so, so well. He gets out in front of guys and is just used to that big body beautifully. And when he needs to make a catch, always does such a fantastic job. And the tight end too, I don't, I don't think he's received a pass yet this year, but has just genuinely impressed me with his do-it-all ability has been Patrick Herbert. This is a guy that we knew he was athletic. We knew he was big at the tight end position. We never really saw him run a ton of routes or anything, but my goodness, He's been put in there, and whether it's blocking from the tight end position or lining up as a fullback, which I, I, I told this to a couple of people on Saturday, but if I would have told you even five years ago, but really at any point that you would have a, a power back by the name of James being blocked for by a fullback named Herbert, I think a lot of people would have thought you were a little wacky. <laughs> yeah. It's certainly a, it would have been a, an impromptu one-off trick play if you would have told them otherwise. But, hey, man, times are changing at Oregon. New program. And it's, program is right. That's a program move right there. Lining up in the I formation and goal to go. The biggest back you have of that rotation standing back there. Oh, my goodness. That is program through and through, and I love to see it. 
Yeah, and I'm excited to see, do we do that against Stanford or something entirely different? Because for, with this offense, it feels like we we have seen it progress week to week doing things we haven't necessarily expected to see. And, you know, they, they've really adapted and made a lot of halftime adjustments that have been impressive to see. But we get down to it, Sam. I'm starting to think I, I really, you know, just talking through this, having such a great, I think, interview, great time summing up last game. I really am starting to believe that this momentum is going to carry over. I, I, I'm starting to feel more and more like a big win. I know earlier in this week, I was really nervous. I was like, ah, Stanford, you can never feel comfortable during a Stanford week, but I, I don't know, man, it, it, it could be a big statement win for Oregon. Uh, if they can just come out and perform under the bright lights, keep the fans excited, keep them in Austin stadium by uh, just continually performing and, uh, it could be one of those games, like you mentioned, that 2010 game where it was uh, it felt like a celebration that entire night once we once we took over. Well, you know, Nick, I think that Oregon still has a lot of responsibilities to take care of this week. They've still got a lot of work ahead of them in terms of the, the team that they're playing. Stanford, a heck of a ball team, as we know, they've struggled this year. But when you have a coach like David Shaw, who knows the conference as well as he does, who knows how to play these games and how to get ready for these games as well as he does. It'll always be a concern. Tanner McKee, we saw what he could do last year. He really did tear Oregon apart. He had three touchdowns and interception in that game at Washington State, throwing it to Wilson, his absolute favorite target, who caught two of those touchdowns, 176 yards. One player, though, will be missing for the Stanford team. It's going to be E.J. Smith, son of Emmett Smith, and the kid looks like him. The kid can play like him. He's super talented, unfortunately. He'll be out the rest of the year for the Cardinal. The leading running back last week was Flickens, Filkins, excuse me, who had 100 yards on 20 carries. Impressive work there. I, I have a hard time seeing Stanford at least be able to get going a little bit offensively, but I think this Oregon team is just so much more powerful, so much more ready to be able to deliver a, a real shot to the Stanford Cardinal team. But Nick, give them your prediction. Let them know what's going on. It's going to be another tough one this week, but I must say, I personally am probably feeling a little bit more confident than I have the last couple. Yeah, yeah, and especially with the team coming in and knowing the experienced team that we have, the guys that were here last year against Stanford that have that bad taste in their mouth, they might want to take it out on Stanford. I'm hoping they do. I know we talk about I don't believe in the transitive property of college football, but I've got to think we're a dozen points better than the Huskies. And when I, when I really think about it, our defense has got to be better too. So I'm going duckies 52 Stanford Cardinal 21. Nick, this is going to be another, this is a tough one for me. This is a real tough one for me just because I, I don't trust Stanford's defense at all. This is one of the rare times where I'm thinking Stanford's offense is probably significantly better than the defense. But I think Oregon's going to win this ballgame. I think that they will continue to work Bo Nix out of the pocket, get a lot of those crossing routes. We've got two, three guys just looking for who the safety chooses, looking for where the space is going to be. I think the defense steps up and they continue to play well, missing DJ Johnson in the first half. Obviously unfortunate, but Oregon is so, so deep at that outside linebacker position. We're really excited to see what that looks like for them. Final score, I think Oregon gets a win here. I think it's convincing. Final score, Oregon 45, 
Stanford 20. I think that Stanford, they might get three touchdowns. I could see the 21, but two touchdowns, two field goals feels a little bit more fair. Oregon, six touchdowns, and Camden Lewis knocks in another one. Ducks take this one. Again, final score, 45 to 20. Well, we're really splitting hairs here, but it's not like we've ever been entirely accurate or confrontational with each other's picks. So it fits the norm. Uh, another another successful once a duck prediction time where uh, our homers uh, our homer predictions come out and usually line by you know pretty pretty small pretty small point spread but hey another great episode glad to do it with you hope everybody out there is following share this with your fellow ducks and I'm excited to see as many of you as possible out there at Auton uh, Saturday night it's going to be a fun time uh, you know get your nap in I know I will and uh, once a duck always a duck